I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Before we get started today, we want to offer a quick content warning for this episode. We're talking about animal studies today, but as part of that conversation, we also talk about particular forms of historical, colonial, and anti-Black violence. That conversation takes place almost entirely in the transfiguration class segment. So if that's not a conversation you're feeling up for today, you might want to skip that segment or maybe just come back to the whole episode when you feel ready for it. At the beginning of the Transfiguration class segment, we're also going to give you another quick reminder. So just listen out for that. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a rebooted podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And hey, Marcel, let's talk about kitties. Mm, do you mean fantastic beasts and magical animals in the... Con- no. Mm-mm. No? Mm-mm. no, no, no. Okay, you're shaking your kitties. head. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna. Okay. Well, that's that's fine. That's why we have the sorting chat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really happy to have a complex theoretical conversation about the representation of animals in this book. But by this book, I mean Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which I accidentally earlier today called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, <laughs> and then immediately got kicked out of the country. But I just would like a really quick update on how all of the cats that you live with are doing. Oh, no, they've abandoned me. Uh, Uh So I'm presently recording in my basement and there are mice down here. And uh, normally I don't see them, so it's fine. But I've started seeing them come out. (laughs) And so I've been bringing the cats down, but they have left. So there's going to be mice in here in no time. Anyway, uh, they're doing okay. Yeah. None of them like one another. Do you want to give us, for for people who are maybe new to your cat Mm. world, do you want to just Mm -hmm. give us a quick rundown of who your three kitties are? Yes. Uh, So I have two kitties. One is named Faye, and she doesn't have any ears. She (laughs) got frostbite as a kitten, and they fell off. And So she looks like a seal. She looks like a seal. She's very cute. And she's a chocolate point Siamese. She's a rescue cat. She's the best. She has very sharp claws. And she likes to sleep on my chest. And then there is Sally, who is... She's my goddaughter. She's your goddaughter. (laughs) She's the fluffiest cat I've ever seen. And she has fur that is... I didn't know that cat fur could be this soft. And it gets really matted really easily. But Mm. she hates being brushed. Mm, And so, and And I have to brush her like five times a week in order to keep her from getting like completely full of like clumpy mats. And um, she hates it. And she turns into a demon every time. She's like a, she's like Dr. Jekyll and Sally Hyde. It's wild. Um, but Sally is very tenacious and she really wants to be friends with the third kitty that I live mm-hmm. with, who is my sister-in-law's kitty. Her name is Suki. 
the kitty, not my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law's name is Jillian. <laughs> I thought you were saying her name is Suki the kitty, like Suki the kitty. Her, her formal title. <laughs> no, I think it's probably Suki Chow Fraser. Yeah, that's a good but, name. Yeah. But Suki is a very anxious kitty and does not like other kitties. And does so not Suki want to be friends like, with Sally. No, no. But they've reached this kind of stalemate where like Sally A detente, if you will. A detente. But we've been joking that this is the closest that Suki is ever gonna be to a bonded pair. So uh when the horrible and devastating day comes that Jillian no longer lives with us, we're gonna send Sally with her because they're as close to being bonded as Suki will ever be. And Sally just really loves chasing her around the house. It's really so cute. So those are the three kitties that I live with. Those are great. Those are great kitties. What good kitties. Actually, no, they're all bad. We have no good kitties. (laughs) They're all bad. I'm not joking. (laughs) They're all wonderful. They're all bad. Hannah, tell me about your kitties. I also have two bad kitties. I think that a function of the pandemic has been spending too much time with your cats and realizing that they're truly nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) That truly, when you only see them four or five hours a day, it's like, what fun animals I live with. And when you're home 100% of the time, you're like, why did I open my home to semi-feral carnivores? I hate them. (laughs) What a nightmare. They ruin all of my stuff. (laughs) They, they, They take out their anger on me. By defecating in places where they're not allowed to. (laughs) They poop on the floor to punish me, eat my food when I turn my back, and scream and scream and scream. (laughs) Why Why are these the creatures I choose to share my life with? And if I die in this house with them, and they they will eat me, and they'll start with my face. Yeah, so that's how I've been feeling about my kitties. I have two kitties. I have I have Al Purdy, who once upon a time was the best behaved cat in the world, but who has been driven mad by the pandemic and has started doing a thing where every day he spends at least an hour sitting in the front hall screaming. And he's producing new noises that in the eight years I have known this cat, he has never made before that are like... <laughs> Are you gonna do an impression yeah, gonna of the noise? Okay, gonna okay, do I'm an ready. Impression. He I'm goes, ready. Instead of being like meow, he's like <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a new sound effect. <laughs> oh, anyway, Alperty is. A really good cat because you can squeeze him like a stuffed toy as hard as you want and he doesn't get mad. And that's really helpful. And he lets me cry on him, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Pancakes, whose Alperty's full name is Alperty, first name Al, last name Purdy. Pancakes' full name is Pancakes Mooncakes McGregor. <laughs> first name Pancakes, middle name Mooncakes, last name McGregor. I don't know why Pancakes is a McGregor and Alperty is not. I don't make the rules, it's just the way it is. <laughs> And Pancakes is a very well-behaved cat, very sweet, very gentle, loves to sleep physically on top of me, Um, does not like to be picked up or touched too hard. Mm -hmm. So I can touch Al hard, but Mm -hmm. he's bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Pancakes is really good, but I can't squish her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know? Yeah. If you combine them both, you would either have the world's worst cat or the world's best cat, depending on which features you chose. It's true. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this has been Kitty Talk. Are you ready for the next segment? <laughs> yes, let's do it. Cool. Great. <laughs> it's the beginning of the school year, and I spend the summer forgetting everything I've ever known. So... I guess it's time for revisions. Ooh. 
Yeah. So this is the segment where we talk a little bit about what we've covered so far and what we're going to cover next. Mm -hmm. So, so far, we've talked about chosen one narratives as well as Orientalism and looked at how these different sort of theoretical framings help us to understand something about the wizarding world as we're first encountering it in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. These theories also help us sort of wrap our heads around how Harry's being positioned as a protagonist and the kinds of tropes that Rowling is drawing on when she starts to build this magical world that we're discovering through his eyes. So like, what are we learning about Harry in the first book? And what are we learning about the world Harry lives in? So in this episode, we're going to expand our view of the magical world a little further by taking a look at some of the animals and beasts and creatures that populate it and asking some questions about how the difference between the human and the animal are defined in Harry Potter. So, Marcel, you agreed to take on <laughs> the daunting but exciting task of taking a look through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and writing down the different animals who show up in it. <laughs> yes. And that is what I did, because when it comes to the theoretical approach we're going to be talking about in the next segment, I have no experience whatsoever. And so I volunteered instead to make some lists and some cat agories, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> I will. You will. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So I made a spreadsheet. Oh, so excited. Hannah, if you would like to click on that link and go visit the spreadsheet, it is color coordinated because I'm a visual learner and color is very helpful for me. Uh, okay, before we get into any serious stuff, we have a whole bunch of non-human creatures in this book and even more in the books that follow. So just to quickly run through them, here are the ones that I found. Owls, cats... A gorilla, a snake, goblins, a rat, a toad, ghost horses, dogs, well, one dog, and one three-headed dog, um, a dragon, unicorns, <laughs> a, a dead unicorn, a dead, a dead unicorn, um, a giant squid, and centaurs, and cave troll. Incredible. So initially, when I was trying to figure out how to organize these different creatures, I was thinking, you know, we could consider all of the creatures in this world as existing on a spectrum from absolute human to absolute non-human. So for example, witch, centaur, thestral, horse. Now, I know we don't have thestrals in this book, but just bear with me. Somebody um, pointed out on Twitter that the thestrals are there in this book. We just can't see them yet. It's so true. Just so like Dumbledore's smart, right? roller skates. Just like Dumbledore's roller skates. Exactly. We just can't see them because they're not part of Harry's journey. Yet. Yet. <laughs> um, but the possibility of a spectrum, like a linear spectrum, becomes totally complicated once we see the overlaps between the different species and the complicated relationships that the different species have. And so... Instead, I'm starting to think of these in terms of categories. So, no, you got me once, but the second time I hate it. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. Get ready. We're going to need a cat sound effect every time Marcel says categories. The people want sound effects and give the people what they want is what yeah. I say. Yep. Okay, so if we assume that witches and muggles are both humans, but centaurs are not humans, where do goblins fit in? Are goblins more human than centaurs? Why or why not? And then what about creatures who we encounter as animals, but who turn out to be humans in the form of animals? So when Professor McGonagall is a cat, is she a cat or is she a human? So what I think we might consider instead of a linear spectrum is the series of cat agories which are not at all mutually exclusive so mm. i am not a scientist these categories <laughs> are deeply but, flawed 
Well, but also, but also, this is a made-up fantasy book, so that's okay. But surely there are animal biologists listening to this who are like, that is not how species categories work. I mean, if somebody who's listening to this who is a biologist wants to respond by making a biologically sound diagram of the various magical and non-magical creatures in Harry Potter, like, I won't be mad. You know what I would love to see is a March Mammal Madness, like, fantasy animal football or whatever, but with magical creatures instead. That would be wild. Okay, anyway, yada, yada, yada. Uh, So the categories, I just need the actual scientists listening to this podcast to know that these categories are based on nothing other than my feelings about where things might fit. Okay, so we have human. Uh Uh-huh. Human adjacent, uh huh. Non-human, uh huh. And then some big old question marks because I don't know what to do with them. And so under human, we have magic folk, and those include witch, wizard, and hag. Those are the ones uh-huh. that I could find in this book. And then non-magic folk, so muggle and squib. Mm-hmm. With human adjacent, we have magic. We have goblins, centaurs. House elves, I know they're not in the book, but they are in the book. They're just not part of Harry's journey yet. Mer people, cave troll. Okay. And then non magic, human adjacent, we have gorilla. Okay. I mean, gorilla as human adjacent, we could spend a long time being like. <laughs> ah! Uh, but there is a kind of like within the storied tradition of sci fi and fantasy, like these would all be sort of anthropomorphic or humanoid Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. magical creatures that nonetheless are sort of imagined along the lines of the human in terms Mm -hmm. of their physiology yes like so that makes sense to me like human proximate fantastical creatures yeah yeah Yeah. exactly fantastical creatures that we could recognize as people in some way yeah or that when they were imagined by people were imagined as being people-ish Yeah. So then we have the, like, definitely non-people-ish, non-human category, category, where we have our magical creatures, our unicorns, our dragons, and our three-headed dogs, which I think are Cerberus. Is that right? I think Cerberus is, like, the proper name of the three-headed dog who guards the gates of hell in Greek mythology. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So a hound of hell. <laughs> a species, a species of hound along with the basset and the beagle. <laughs> I like the way you say hound. Hound? <laughs> okay, and then, and then under non-human, we also have our non-magical creatures, dogs, the giant squid. Is the giant squid not magical? I don't know why it would be. It's just a giant squid. What magical action have you seen it do? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Live at Hogwarts, <laughs> I guess. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't. <laughs> All right. We'll move giant squid under the question mark category, okay? I'll yeah. Do it right thank now. You. Giant squid. Okay. So under the question mark category, now these, okay, I'm going to read them and I bet some of you out there are going to hear this and go, why are these question marks? Snakes, Uh owls, Uh cats, rats, squeak, toads, ribbit, (laughs) croak, (laughs) croak, bud. (laughs) And then there are werewolves, vampires, maybe animagi. I don't know. Okay. Okay. So the reason that these are question marks for me is because I am unclear if we are to understand that owls, for example, are all owls magical? Are only some owls magical? Or are owls non-magical, but magic folk are able to engage in activities with them that are not accessible to non-magic folk. So like, Mm -hmm. I can't get an owl to deliver a letter for me. Is that because the owl I'm trying to give my letter to is a non-magic owl? Or is it because I am a non-magic person? That is such a good question. Yeah. Or is it a subset of magical (laughs) owls or 
are we just muggles? Yeah. And so then the same with snakes, because Harry can talk to snakes because he is a parcel mouth and he speaks parcel tongue. Can he speak to all snakes or only some snakes? Because only parcel mouths can speak parcel tongue. So that's not something that is available to muggles, but it's also not available to all wizards either. So are all snakes magical? Or are all snakes mundane? Or most snakes are mundane and Harry can just talk to them. Yeah. Oh, God. And yeah, and and the same goes for like the subcategories. Like there's obviously some inherently magical property about the subcategories of animals that are recognized as familiars that you are allowed to bring to Mm -hmm. school with you. So if you can bring toads, owls, or cats... Mm-hmm. Are the believe the ones that they actually say in the letter you're allowed to bring? Mm-hmm. Then does that mean that those animals have an inherently magical quality as familiars? It suggests that there is something special about them, mm-hmm. but we don't know what that is. That no. is not clarified at any point <laughs> what exactly is magical about a toad, yeah. other than its capacity for eternal escape. Exactly. Is Trevor the toad even magical? Is Trevor the Toad also secretly a middle-aged man in disgust? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. But I have I have more questions. Okay. Here are the questions that I pose to you, Hannah, in anticipation of our next segment. And maybe we can come back to these questions. Yeah, let's come back to them in, in segment three or four. Yeah. I don't know how numbers work. Uh, yeah. Okay. So do you want to hear the rest of them now? And then yeah. we'll answer them later? Yeah. Okay. So let's assume that that was question one. <laughs> Question two. When a human, either a magic or a non-magic folk, becomes imbued with magical properties, so either non-consensually, so say by getting bitten by a werewolf or a vampire, Mm -hmm. or consensually, like learning how to become an animagus. Mm -hmm. Animagus? Animagus. Nobody knows. I have no idea. I want to know, does that person then become human adjacent? So if you transform into a non-human. Oh, what is your relationship to the human when you are a vampire? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. And with werewolves, even perhaps more unclear. And then as an animagus or animagus, again, like Professor McGonagall, when Professor McGonagall is a cat, is she a cat or is she a human? I don't know. And question three builds off of question two. If when Professor McGonagall is a cat, she is a cat, is she a magical cat or is she a non-magical cat? Whoa, is she just a cat? Is she just a cat? Does she have magical abilities as a cat that Mrs. Fig's cats don't have, for example? Unclear. Okay, question four. What is the nature of the keys that have been transfigured to fly at the end of the book? They seem to have agency and the kind of agency that we associate with sentient creatures, but are they sentient? I don't know. Nor do I. I desire to know. Are they bird bugs? Bird bird bugs. I can't. I don't know if they're birds or bugs. Yeah, same. Like a hummingbird. Is that a bird or a bug? Nobody knows. Hmm. (laughs) And then my last question, question Uh five. This one only just occurred to me late last night after a few glasses of wine, but nonetheless, I raise it here. I hope it's not a silly question. There are no silly questions. Yes, there are. Question five. Are the sentient plants in the wizarding world flora or fauna? So should we think of devil's snare as being a sentient plant or a plant-like creature? Whoa. What about the whomping willow? Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. What about, I mean, oh, not to mention the most horrifying example of like an anthropomorphic plant, which is the mandrakes, which like gradually mature until it's time to murder them. (laughs) They even become sullen teenagers. Like they are so thoroughly anthropomorphized yeah it's distressing that's Ah! fine we don't we don't have to talk there's it's the wrong book we don't have to talk about them thank 
God, we don't have to talk about that now. Oh my God, Mandrix. Oh, okay. Marcel, these are yeah. such good questions. Thank you. Uh, and I think if we're going to be able to answer them, mm-hmm. I think we might need a little, uh, a little theoretical assistance. Let's do it. Let's go there. Great. Hey, Hannah. Do you think if we're really good, McGonagall will teach us how to turn kitties into even more kitties? In transfiguration class? (laughs) This is my understanding of how transfiguration works. Yes, absolutely. Multiplication tables. (laughs) Transfiguration is just applied multiplication, I'm pretty sure. Asexual reproduction. Yeah. A heads up before we get too far into this segment, I am going to be discussing some specific aspects of critical animal studies that talk about white supremacy in the history of anti-Black racism and particular forms of anti-Black racial violence. If that is not a conversation you are interested in or feeling up for, you can skip this segment and go straight ahead to our OWLS segment. Okay, it's theory time. Hannah, I'm going to need you to explain this (laughs) theory to me because it is totally out of my wheelhouse. So we're talking this week about critical animal studies, which is a theoretical field that is very close to my heart, despite the fact that I have never actually researched in this field. I have taught courses based in critical animal studies. I also am personally very interested in animal studies as a vegan because I think that there's lots of really important foundational texts that underpin my sort of ethical veganism that come out of animal studies in terms of basic critique of the way that we categorize the world into the human and the not human. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. unlike Orientalism or the hero's quest, it's really hard to attribute animal studies as a field to like a person. You can't Mm. point at somebody and be like, Orientalism, it's Edward Said. The hero's quest, it's... Joseph Campbell. Yeah. So it's not a field that emerged out of a particular person's intervention. It's much more a sort of series of perspectives on how we think and talk about animals. It's a really sort of interdisciplinary theoretical field. So some people come at it from biology, some people come at it from indigenous studies, some people come at it from feminism, people come at Mm. it from a lot of different perspectives, environmental studies, like lots of different ways of thinking about, you know, what is the animal and how do we talk about it? And really, what animal studies is particularly interested in is our sort of cultural representations of animals. So okay, When we talk about animals, you know, how are we imagining them? How are we constructing them? How are we representing them? And what does the way that we represent animals tell us about how we're also understanding and constructing the category of the human? Mm, Okay, okay, okay. I'm with you. So I want to take up a quick sidebar into ideology. Everybody loves talking about ideology. It's my favorite. Animals in particular really help us think about ideology and how it works in a way that we can connect back to our conversations last episode about tropes and discourse. Mm -hmm. So we talked last episode about how a trope is a representational shorthand. So the way that we sort of signal to people something we assume that they will understand by using a sort of shorthand to say something and that a discourse is a language that enacts power by generating knowledge. So we create power over something by how we describe it. Mm -hmm. So tropes are part of how discourse functions, which is why we want to pay attention to narrative shorthands, because they are often giveaways of the discourses a text is participating in. Like if a text gives us the sort of trope of a villain with a hooked nose, then it is participating in Orientalist discourses. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. In turn, the discourses that a text draws on reveal to us something about the ideologies it's operating within. So that's kind of my, in my mind, it's like trope, 
discourse ideology in order. Okay. So an ideology, the definition of ideology, and this comes from Louis Althusser, is Louis. Louis. Is our imagined relationship to the real conditions of our existence. That's the definition. So ideology is how we understand the world. And the whole point is that it's our understanding. Mm-hmm. The question of whether there is any such thing as real conditions of our existence is something that a lot of theorists fight about. So it's like we have an imagined relationship to the world, but is there a real one that we could like access if we broke free of ideology? Or can we break free of ideology? Is there an outside to the matrix? Great question. Nobody knows. But ideology <laughs> is, I mean, the matrix is a helpful way to think about ideology. It's like It really is. It's like the imaginary world that we are trapped in. Yeah. So we're almost definitely going to talk way more about ideology in later episodes. Mm -hmm. But for the time being, I'm bringing it up because a great example of ideology at work is the way that Western cultures define the human as that which is non-animal. And we know this is ideological because it's an imagined category, human Mm -hmm. and non-human. There's nothing essential there, we've made up Mm -hmm. those categories, that tells us how to interpret our real existence, which is to say, it insists that we are other than animal, despite the fact that our biological nature is extremely Mm. animal-like. That's right. Yes. And don't we share a lot of chromosomes with apes? I mean, the desire to draw a clean line between the human and the animal is, again, you can tell it's ideology at work because it doesn't actually work biologically, (laughs) right? Okay. I mean, another great example of ideology at work is the idea of the sex binary. The idea that there are, I mean, that biological sex exists at all in Mm -hmm. any clean way, let alone that there are two biological Mm -hmm. sexes. That's an ideological understanding of the world that's being imposed on biology because any actual biologist would tell you, like... Sex is significantly more complicated than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Not okay. to even mention gender, which, you know, is so transparently ideological in terms of how we talk about gender. All right. But we're talking about humanness and animalness. Mm-hmm. So the ideology that we're going to be looking at is humans are not animals. Okay. The discourse that supports that ideology is the actual knowledge that we have generated as humans about humans and animals that we use to argue for the distinction. Okay. Right. So what actual knowledge are we producing to articulate that distinction? And then the tropes through which that discourse operates are the shorthand we use to define the human and the animalistic. Okay. And where this becomes really interesting is where we see animalistic tropes being used to dehumanize certain people. I was just going to ask, like the way that people are figured as animals in violent racist conflicts, right? 100%. Like like in Rwanda, people referring to Tutsis as cockroaches, for example. Yes, absolutely. Within human relationships, rendering the other animalistic Mm -hmm. as a way of dehumanizing them in order to justify violence against them. Mm -hmm. That works because of this whole ideological understanding we have that to be human is to be not an animal. Right, right. So I want to point towards a couple of sort of subfields of critical animal studies that I think are going to help us answer some of those questions that you have. Okay. So the first person, I'm only going to name two scholars because I think that they are both really neat. Scholar one is Donna Haraway. Mm-hmm. Donna Haraway is one of the founders of feminist science and technology studies. She particularly works on cyborgs and animals. And mm-hmm. she's interested in both cyborgs and animals. And more recently, cephalopods specifically. She loves tentacles. Oh as ways of complicating our understanding of the human. She's particularly interested in challenging this like enlightenment era understanding of the human as autonomous, independent, and the center of the world. Instead, she wants to think about how we're actually interrelated, entangled, and sort of mutually 
define one another, whether that's Mm. the human and the machine or the human and the animal. She's like, Mm -hmm. rather than those being categories that are cleanly divided, the whole point is that we're all tangled up with each other. Mm -hmm. That's why she likes tentacles. That's why she likes tentacles, because she likes to get Mm -hmm. tangled up. I'm doing tentacle Mm -hmm. hands whenever I talk about tentacles. So (laughs) Haraway specifically, and this is in her words, she's interested in an ethics and politics committed to the flourishing of significant otherness. So like rather than sort of pushing what is other away, she's like, let's all just like foster the beauty and diversity of otherness in all of its different forms. Mm -hmm. And she's interested in how we can learn that kind of ethics and politics from taking our relationships with critters, as she likes to say, seriously. So what does it mean to understand the human and the critter as entangled? Okay, okay. So right off the bat, Haraway is saying to us, like, any categorizations where we have the human in a discrete category Mm -hmm. doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Because we're not a discrete category and we can't be meaningfully separated out from the animal. All right. Yeah. So I will add into that the really important interventions that are happening in critical animal studies from indigenous studies. Mm -hmm. particularly indigenous scholars have taken up critical animal studies to point out how the categories of the human and the animal as separate are a Mm -hmm. function of colonization and the imposition Mm -hmm. of colonial categories of being. Okay. So there's some particularly good scholarship from Billy Ray Belcourt, who is a fantastic scholar and poet, and has argued that the category of the animal as other than human is built specifically, and these are his words, on the erasure of indigenous bodies and the emptying of indigenous lands for settler colonial expansion. Again, his words. And thus that, quote, we cannot address animal oppression or talk about animal liberation without naming and subsequently dismantling settler colonialism and white supremacy as political machinations that require the simultaneous exploitation and or erasure of animal and indigenous bodies, end quote. Wow. What a mind. I know, right? So his whole argument really is directed towards white people who want to argue for animal liberation without understanding that first we need to dismantle Mm -hmm. the settler colonial state before anyone will be free. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I get that. And then the final thing that I want to add in is that lots of scholars have also pointed out not only that the animal-human divide is like a patriarchal divide and a settler Mm -hmm. colonial divide, but it is also at at the root of white supremacy and how Mm -hmm. white supremacy has been articulated, Mm -hmm. particularly because tied into the whole history of dividing the human and the animal is a history of biological racism. Yes. So biological racism, which we've discussed a little bit already around Orientalism, is the sort of pseudoscientific division of the world into racial categories. Mm -hmm. So the invention of these categories that the world can be divided into. And then the attribution of traits two different races based on claims of biological difference. Again, it is important to understand that these were invented, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that race isn't a real and lived and experienced category, but is to mm-hmm. say that any claims to biological reality to race are always bullshit. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one okay. must keep that in mind. They yes. are always bullshit. Yes. So this is another really great example of a discourse which is, say, race, in mm-hmm. this case, that functions to perpetuate an ideology, which is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of historical biologists and anthropologists particularly were interested in the 19th century in the idea of something that they called the missing link. This was an attempt to account for the evolutionary shift from animal to human, specifically to understand how we got from monkeys to humans. So they were like, what's, you know, there's got to be something that's sort of almost like a human, but also still a lot like a monkey. Mm -hmm. And 19th and early 20th century scientists not only argued that black people were more closely related to apes than white people were, but Mm. displayed black people in zoos as evidence Mm. of the missing link between the animal and the human. So we understand that these categories, the sort of ideological notion of the human as other than the animal isn't politically neutral or innocent. It's Mm -hmm. always entangled with these political motivations. In this case, 
very clearly with white supremacy mm-hmm. as a way of sort of saying we get to manage the boundaries of what constitutes the human and to mm-hmm. exclude or include people based on, you know, how that actually serves power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at multiple different levels, the category of the animal is a deeply ideological category that we've constructed in order to define what counts as us via what is not us. Mm-hmm. And history demonstrates really clearly that that ideological category has been used not only to justify violence against non-human animals and mm-hmm. the environment to mm-hmm. justify like humans, you know, lord over the environment so we can do whatever we want with it, but mm-hmm. also to justify settler colonialism and racial violence. So if we're going to come back to this question of how is the human categorized in these books, mm-hmm. bringing this kind of understanding of how deeply ideologically rooted the whole notion of the human and the animal is, and the kind of violence that often is at work in our discourses of animalness and humanness, mm-hmm. I think it might show us a little something more about how <laughs> magical beasts are being represented. I think you're right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? No. <laughs> yes. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. (laughs) All right. Have you had enough animal sound effects yet? Never. I hope not, because it's time for the owls, where we use our theories to unpack something new about Harry Potter. So in light of what we've just learned about animal studies, let's return to those categories of magical beasts and those questions and think about how the human and the animal is being imagined in this Mm -hmm. book. So do we want to just run through these questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. So building from the history that you've just described, it's clear that there are not going to be any neat and tidy answers to how these different categories are going to function in Mm -hmm. the magical world, right? And because we are not invested in what J.K. Rowling herself has declared to be the case, but instead are interested in what the text makes available to us, there are a variety of different ways that we can understand these magical creatures, these human-adjacent or humanoid creatures, and also the distinctions between magic folk and non-magic folk. Mm -hmm. And based on the history that you've just described, Hannah, it's very clear that these lines of distinction are not going to be clean either, and that they're not going to be apolitical. So the distinction between muggle and witch wizard hag fairy, whoever, is going to be a political distinction. And the distinction between squib and muggle or squib and magic person, very political. So political. Yes, Ooh. absolutely. And and I know that different readers have developed really interesting theories around, for example, the idea that everybody has the capacity for magic mm-hmm. and that rather the sort of division of the world into muggles and wizards is basically an example of an elitist class attempting to maintain power over mm-hmm. a particular resource, which is magic, and that the only muggle-borns who get invited into that world are muggle-borns whose magic is so obvious it can't be ignored. But mm-hmm. that, in fact, this is a former guest, former and probably future guest of the podcast, uh, Andrea Hasenbank is very interested in this fan theory because it is (laughs) deeply socialist. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, we have to be critical of all of these categories. And in fact, the books give us 
some textual evidence for how these categories are contested. And that Mm -hmm. increases throughout the series, right? Mm -hmm. So like much later on in the series, we start to get a sense of kinds of like legislation that exists Mm. within the wizarding world for Mm -hmm. defining who counts as a wizard and who doesn't and for sort of managing the relationship between witches and wizards and Mm -hmm. sort of magical creatures and mm-hmm. that is absolutely a conversation we can return to when we get oh, to yes. those books because mm-hmm. it's going to get messier when we actually introduce sort of literal legislation <laughs> into mm-hmm. these conversations. <laughs> and we'll have to come back to like, why is white supremacy and fascism as embodied by Voldemort's rise invested in inscribing more strictly the lines between the human and the animal? Well, we have a sense now of why that might be the case. Yes. Right. Yes, we do. There's a couple of characters or groups of people we encounter in this book that are already giving us a really clear heads up of how the book is going to be using sort of non-human but humanoid magical people creatures Mm -hmm. to play out anxieties about race Mm -hmm. via the goblins and the centaurs. I also would like to make a pitch for the unicorn as Mm. well. Should we talk about goblins and centaurs first? Yeah. So we've talked about goblins already and the way that the representation of the goblins is deeply Semitic, um, Mm. deeply (laughs) anti-Semitic. Yeah, those things are both true. And, (laughs) And that that, you know, is a place we can see Orientalism at work in the text. The centaurs are not orientalized in the same way that the goblins are. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, we don't have very much sense at all of how the centaurs are going to appear, except insofar, and I know we have argued this before, except insofar as the centaurs sort of fulfill a quote-unquote noble savage role Mm -hmm. in these texts in a way that aligns them with how Indigenous people have historically been represented, which is to say that they're sort of of nature Mm -hmm. and live in this uncharted wilderness, which is the forbidden forest, and have sort of forms of magical wisdom that give them heightened awareness of the way the world works, but that is not necessarily understandable to our human characters. Mm -hmm. There's lots of hints of how the centaurs are going to be treated. But again, that's going to sort of become more of a thing as the series continues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In particular, I think the way in which they are depicted as being a very proud species Mm -hmm. and very enigmatic. So like when, who is it? I think it's Firenze. We can open the book and find out. No. When he looks at the stars... And he doesn't answer Harry's question. He just says something about the stars. Is it Mars is bright tonight? Because that line is always very funny to me. Yes. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I mean, the cave troll is another great example, right? Yeah. How do we decide that a cave troll counts as a monster and not Mm -hmm. as a person? Right? Like, and they do specify that cave trolls are not intelligent. So there's also a very specific, would you call it like neuroclassism, maybe? An absolute way of saying we can tell a cave troll is not a person because they are not smart and they are violent. Mm-hmm. And those, again, if we if we really are unpacking the history of how the sort of animalization of certain others is used as a way of excluding people from the category of the human, that's Mm -hmm. very clearly at work in how trolls are treated. And giants later in the series. Yes, yes. Hmm. Okay, so you had mentioned that there are some racialized anxieties that are being played out with some of these magical creatures. And This immediately made me think of the way in which the murder of the unicorn can be understood as being representative of similar racial anxieties. So unicorns are white. They are literally depicted as pure, glowing white. They are pure creatures. So one of the centaurs explains to Harry that 
To slay a unicorn is an abomination. The unicorn's blood will keep you alive, but you will have but a half-life. It is a cursed life, that kind of thing. So if we think about the unicorn as being represented as literally white, but also figuratively representative of whiteness and the purity of whiteness, the possibility of pure whiteness... And the, as we discussed in the last episode, the orientalized villain who slays the unicorn, this book is also saturated with this kind of racialized anxiety about the pureness of the white race being infected or tainted or threatened by Mm -hmm. the oriental other. Absolutely. And we get this sort of different kind of division, a racialized division between the sort of the non-human others who are helpful Mm -hmm. and the non-human others who hinder. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that distinction between like what are good magical beasts who can live in and as part of wizarding society and interact with wizards and often serve them. That's Mm. often the sort of Mm -hmm. good role that a magical but non-human creature can have is of service in some Mm -hmm. way to the wizards versus the ones that endanger or threaten the wizards. And those are the ones that are monstrous and need to be cast out. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, mirrors the non-magic relationship with animals too, right? With the exception of our household murder panthers, the animals who we consider to be helpful are animals who we can put to work or consume yeah. versus the animals who threaten us like mice, but also lions. Which can't help us with anything and also we can't eat them. So what is the point of them? How what dare the they? What is the point of them? Get out of my house. <laughs> Get out of my house, lions. <laughs> God, I have a real lion problem. Mm, Tell me about it. So when we revisit those taxonomies, what really stands out is the way that the text reinforces those taxonomies Mm -hmm. as a way of showing us that the wizarding world itself relies on a kind of management of who Mm. gets to live inside certain categories and who has to be pushed outside of those categories and Mm -hmm. who is challenging those categories by weaving back and forth across them. You know, we've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about the way that some of these magical creatures align with this history of biological racism. Mm -hmm. If we come back to Donna Haraway, who would be Mm -hmm. a big fan of the giant squid, but Mm -hmm. is also really interested in how when humans share our lives with critters, Mm -hmm. it reminds us that the category of the human isn't all that sort of cohesive and autonomous. Mm -hmm. And so the familiars Mm -hmm. that our various protagonists share their lives with are great examples of critters, of sort of companion species that challenge the sort of coherent boundaries of like what's magical and what's not which is why so many of them showed up in that question category because mm-hmm. like their whole purpose is to mess with those boundaries and mm-hmm. to undermine the notion of what's magical and what's not and what's human and what's not it's also so remarkable that the characters who cross those boundaries in terms of their relationships with animals are figured as either heroic or villainous, right? Mm. So eventually when we meet Voldemort and he has that relationship with snakes, well, I mean, parcel mouths in general who are able to speak to snakes, it's never figured in a positive way. Harry is seen as exceptional for his ability Mm -hmm. to do that. But then if we think of Hagrid, who is perhaps our most liminal figure, who is himself part giant, has the most tender and open and loving relationship with magical creatures. Not just magical creatures, all creatures. There is no evidence that Fang is magical. He is just a regular boar hound. He's just a nice dog. <laughs> He's just and a big boy. It's such a great example of how Hagrid as this liminal creature who is reminding us of the sort of porous boundary between the human and the Mm non-human in terms of how it's policed and managed in the wizarding world, right? Because Mm -hmm. giants aren't really 
categorized as humans in the wizarding world in a any tidy way mm-hmm. that his liminality not only positions him physically between Hogwarts and the Forbidden Forest, That's which right. is mm-hmm. the zone of the sort of magical non-human, but also is signaled by like his love and tenderness towards all creatures, great and small, dangerous and not Mm -hmm. and that's played for humor a lot in the series but is also I think a sort of recurring reminder of the sort of kindness and tenderness that characterizes Hagrid but also the way that like the characters who are held up as exemplars of people who exist in the world in a non-violent and non-oppressive way Mm -hmm. are people who are not interested in or invested in these categories or who are willing to push against the boundaries of them. Mm -hmm. Your point about how Voldemort also subverts the human-animal boundary in a way that is dangerous Mm -hmm. and Hagrid subverts it in a way that is... Charming? Positive. Yeah. And that is... That is so interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why is Hagrid's love of enormous murder spiders somehow funny (laughs) as opposed to, like, it's horrifying, but in a funny way, as opposed to having a long-term relationship with a snake who may or may not have part of your soul embedded in it? A long-term relationship with a snake. I mean, a big... (laughs) characteristic difference of the way that Hagrid relates to the various animals and magical creatures and beasts and whatever we want to call them in his world is that he is never or almost never putting them to work. Mm. They never serve a function for him. They're never utilitarian. They're never... Mm particularly beneficial relationships Mm. that he strikes up, right? That they are relationships of mutual trust and care and Mm nonviolence, but Mm -hmm. they are not relationships. You know, he's got Fang. Yeah. And Fang is the closest he has to like an animal that he's putting to work in any transparent way. But Fang is also like pointedly useless. Fang's whole bit. And then he has all of these other animals that he brings into his life. And they're like, not only can he not put them to use in any way, but they're like actively endangering him. (laughs) Yes. So there is is something there about that sort of nonviolence as compared to how Voldemort is constantly instrumentalizing Mm -hmm. his snake companions for nefarious reasons. (laughs) Snake companions. Yeah, I love this. (laughs) Oh, wow. I feel like this conversation about the human and magical creatures is one we're going to have to come back to as we get later into this series. Totally agree. Yeah, there is there's a lot going on here. But I think we uh, we 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 bit off a little corner of it today. Mm -hmm. Scratched the surface (laughs) with our our talons. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode three of the new and improved Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our brand new but already beloved producer, Ariana. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming with us on this journey. If you're into the reboot, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. Every week, we'll read five-star reviews here. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel mispronounce your name. This is not a new review. I found it on the internet, but I liked it. And since we haven't started releasing these episodes yet, read this old one, Marcel. Do you like it because it has an illegible name attached to it? 
Yes. Okay. Okay. So this is a five-star review from, I'm going to give two options here. One is Kazern. Skazern. And the other might be Run. Maybe it's probably it's probably Cas run, but I like Skazern. Skazern. The review says, "I love SFF science fiction and fantasy in general, and I love Harry Potter in particular. And as dismaying as the author is, oh, amen. This podcast has been a delight. The hosts are funny and thoughtful." And it's fine to happily discuss the foods of the wizarding world while also questioning how everything is fixed when one small group of evil people are defeated at the end of the series. Also, don't forget, listeners, we've started a Patreon where you can help us keep this project going and gain access to that solid gold bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. On our next episode, we'll be continuing on our journey through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone with a whole different focus. But until then, later, witches! Witches!